proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let every man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he threatened. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate, that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said, I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? And our next reading is just three or four pages on after Jonah through Micah and we come to Nahum, chapter 1, and verses 1 to 8. An oracle concerning Nineveh. 
the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. The Lord is, jealous, is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt, melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into darkness. And now just four verses from Matthew in the New Testament, chapter 12, verses 38 to 41. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the Lord said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, <laughs> A wicked and adulterous nation, generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge whale, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. Well, can I reiterate the, uh, uh, the lovely welcome given to us all by, uh, by John this morning. Uh, it's good to be back together again at uh, Emmanuel Epsom. Uh, if you're not regularly part of us, we want to give you a very warm welcome indeed. And um, we trust that hopefully you'll be back with us again soon. We have reached um, the second part of our mini-series on uh, the prophet Jonah. Uh, if you'd like to turn back to that little book, I have a new Bible. Part of the, uh, the attraction of buying this particular Bible, which I got from a charity shop, is that when you close up the, 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 uh, the pages, you can, you can easily get to where you need to by these little inserts here. So it's no difficulty for me to find Jonah. We're going to be looking at the second part of Jonah. Thank you to Pauline for reading uh, Jonah's chap uh, Jonah chapters 3 and 4 to us. If we could uh, go to the slides. You remember last week we had a few slides. They're not quite so interesting this week. But um, this is where we are. Uh, chapters 3 and 4 are going to be talking about repentance, revival and resentment. So if we could go to the first uh, 
map. Do you remember this map from last week? This was a map showing um, the regional powers of the time. So uh, Jonah would have lived in Canaan uh, around about seven o'clock, just near the, oh, thank you, Chris, that's very helpful. Uh, and then he was called by God to go and preach to the great city of Nineveh up towards the northeast there, which was part of uh, the Assyrian Empire. And there, just to the south of the Assyrian Empire, you can see the Babylonian Empire. And then to the north, you've got the Hittites and the Hurrians. But um, Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. And uh, we'll see in the second slide uh, what he did. So there you can see Joppa, which was the port where he boarded a boat going in precisely the other direction from Nineveh. And he was um, intending to go to the eastern coast of Spain, right through the Mediterranean. Would have been a lovely cruise on a nice day. But unfortunately, there was a huge storm. God sent a huge storm and somewhere on that journey, um, there was a, um, a huge tempest arose. And um, we remember what happened that uh, he was sleeping in the bottom of the boat and the sailors had to get him up and get him on uh, onto understanding why this storm had arisen. And uh, eventually he was thrown overboard, swallowed by a great fish and vomited back on land somewhere. And then he comes to uh, chapter three, the word of the Lord coming to him a second time. So here we have uh, another slide of Jonah being vomited out by the great fish. We know not where, but I'm sure he was very glad. And, um, and as the story progresses, we can see that Jonah is sent back to, uh, the, people, uh, to the people of Nineveh. So next slide, please. And um, you can see him preaching in that great city. Now, Nineveh was a huge city. Uh, we're told that it would have taken three days to go around. It's the kind of place where you would go away for uh, a mini break, uh, a weekend. People these days go to Seville or Barcelona. Well, in those days, you went to Nineveh. It had botanical gardens. It had a zoo. They found all these things when they've exca excavated it. Huge city. And there, Jonah preaches to the people. 40 days, and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. Not a popular message. And uh, as we'll see uh, just a little bit later, uh, a very unexpected message. But then, next slide, please, Chris. The most amazing thing happened. These pagan heathens, who weren't worshippers of God, who... Uh, had no Jewish history, they didn't know much about the Old Testament at all, they believed Jonah and they repented from top to bottom, uh, right the way through society, they repented of their sins, turned from their violence, which was the great characteristic of Nineveh, and returned to God and had faith and trust in him. And God uh, took them seriously with their repentance and he said right I won't bring about the judgment that I promised that Jonah promised next slide please so at the beginning of chapter four you have a very unhappy Jonah and he makes himself a little shelter goes off to the east of the city 
and there he waits to see what will happen. But he's very unhappy. Grumpy was the word that John used, and I think that's uh, putting it mildly. And uh, here we see the next slide that uh, the vine that, uh, or the plant, whatever it was, that God had made to give Jonah shelter was unfortunately eaten by a tiny worm. And uh, Jonah, for a second time, wants to die and becomes very unhappy. And um, he becomes very unhappy about this vine having been chewed. And uh, he wants God to take away his life. And then the last slide I think we have here is the, is the skeleton, if you like, of what we're going to be doing today. So the rejuvenated preacher brings revival. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. Uh, secondly, the revival leads to resentment on Jonah's part. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. Third heading is the heart of Jonah and the heart of God. A great contrast as that comes out in chapter 4. And then finally, the lesson from Nahum. So, uh, thank you for those slides. Uh, Chris, we haven't had Larry the lobster so far and I doubt whether he's going to make um, an appearance today but so much the better for that. So Jonah is uh, sent back again to um, the people of Nineveh. Uh, do you remember originally in chapter one he was sent on a momentous mission and then in chapter two, he experiences this calamitous or this catastrophic cruise thrown overboard, swallowed by the great fish. And he sings a psalm in the slime. And um, then the word of God comes to him a second time. Go to Nineveh and preach against it. So having washed his clothes, uh, been in the shower changed his clothes, he starts on his way back to Nineveh. And this sophisticated city, a centre of great civilization, responds in repentance to Jonah's message from the least to the greatest. What a preacher Jonah must have been. And the thing that strikes you about this story of Nineveh uh, being preached to by Jonah, he's how unlikely was their repentance? How unlikely? And you begin to cast around, well, why did they believe him? There's this rather strange man who's been sent uh, 500 miles from his home. He turns up in the city. He preaches this rather unlikely message of judgment, 40 days, and Nineveh's going to be overthrown, and they believe him. Why do they repent? Why do they believe him? Well, in those days, they didn't have the internet. How did people manage before social media and the internet? Well, in those days, it was an oral society that, uh, in terms of communication, relied upon travellers coming to the city to bring the news of what was happening in the outside world. That's how you got your news in those days. And it was, quite often it was quite old news, not like the instant news we have today where something has happened and you hear about it in 10 minutes. 
Now, the people of Nineveh had heard that there had been a terrible storm. They were quite a long way away from it, but they'd heard the travellers came into the city and they said, well, do you know what? There was this terrible storm. It blew up very quickly, lasted a matter of hours, and then very, very unusual. And the thing was, we heard this from some sailors that uh, there was this rather odd chap, Jonah, in their hold. They brought him up, they cast lots because they wanted to know the origin of this mighty storm. And um, he said, well, actually, I'm a Hebrew prophet and I've been told to go to the city of Nineveh, but I'm, I'm not going to go there. I've, I've completely resigned. I've lost faith in God. But if you throw me overboard, the storm will calm down. And the, the sailors told us that's exactly what they did. They threw him overboard, and the next minute, the storm begins to calm down. And within a matter of minutes, the sea is calm again. And uh, threw this chap overboard, and he died. That's an amazing story. And this traveller coming into Nineveh would have told them this story. And then, lo and behold, Jonah turns up. He's got a rather fishy smell about him, uh, and that gives some credibility to his story. But uh, he's coming to Nineveh, claiming to be that man who literally had come back from the dead. That's why this reference in Matthew chapter 12, which was read earlier to us, makes so much sense. The sign of Jonah that was coming into Nineveh was that here was a man who was literally, who had literally come back from the dead. Three days and three nights in the belly of this great fish. And here he was preaching in their city centre that Nineveh would be overthrown. Now, that's the only reason I can think, actually, that they believed him. Because, well, there was the smell, there was the odd looking uh, kind of thing that he had. But he had credibility because he'd literally come back from the dead. Now that's the sign of Jonah that uh, uh, Matthew makes reference to where the Lord Jesus says, and I'm going to give a sign to this generation that wants signs and wonders. The sign of Jonah is that a man will come back from the dead. And that's the significance of the story, is that as Jonah goes back into Nineveh, He's literally come back from the dead and they believe him. Everything he says about his experience in that great storm is borne out. So they have to believe him. And from the very top to the king who makes this, uh, this great decree that even the animals are to be uh, covered in sackcloth and ashes. Nobody's to eat or drink. And they repent. So God has compassion upon the Ninevites. He doesn't bring about the terrible judgment that Jonah had threatened. The question then arises, well, God, did God change his mind? What was he, what was he up to? Because he'd sent Jonah, this, uh, this rather unfortunate prophet, he sent him to the city. They repented. And the text seems to indicate that God changes his mind. Well, God did God change his mind? Well, of course, you only have to read the story to understand that actually 
God was not responding to their repentance. He was leading them to repentance. He brought this preacher 500 miles. God had taken the initiative all along. This is a story of sovereign grace. He was not responding to their repentance. He was leading them to repentance. And perhaps that's been your experience as a Christian. Uh, perhaps you were converted. And when you were first saved as a Christian, you thought, well, this is my decision. I have, uh, I have left my sins behind. I have responded to the Spirit of God and I've done it. But chapter 2, verse 9, remember, um, uh, reminds us that salvation is of the Lord. This is not God changing his mind. And we're going to come back to this issue a bit later in chapter 4. Let's go to our second heading, which is revival leads to resentment. If the story had finished at the end of chapter three, we would have quite understood it. Uh, God's prophet goes to this great city, Nineveh, they all repent. There we are, let's, uh, let's all go home. Great story, wonderful story of salvation. But there's a twist in the tale, isn't there? And uh, what we find is that Jonah becomes very resentful. And in chapter four, uh, we, we find Jonah becomes greatly displeased and angry. Is this not what I said when I was still at home? That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Take away my life now, God. It's better for me to die than to live. Well, why, why was Jonah in such a strop? Well, he goes off in a huff and uh, he builds this little shaft outside of the city. And frankly, he's waiting for the 40 days. He's waiting for the 40 days to be finished and then for Nineveh to be overthrown. And part of him thinks, well, is it going to come from the Hittites and the Hurrians to the north? Is it going to come from the Babylonians to the south? Is it going to come from... Uh, from Egypt to the southwest or is it going to be an amazing spectacle like Sodom and Gomorrah oh I do hope so that's Jonah's mindset now remember we must look at this from Jonah's point of view for a moment remember we explored this a little bit last week remember he hated the Assyrians they were worthy of his hatred he had very good reasons to hate them they were the enemies of God's people. They were just about, actually, to invade Israel. They didn't deserve to be saved. They were characterised by violence. In this great city of Nineveh, it was an unruly place. The, the, um, the, the police in Nineveh were extremely busy. And now, of course, they were sitting around in the police station wondering what to do because the violence had all finished. But they were known as cunning and cruel and brutal. They were the Nazis of the time. So he hated them. Secondly, he'd known all along that God might be compassionate and spare them. We've just read that uh, in the first few verses of chapter four. 
he might spare these Assyrian brutes. You've made me look stupid now because I've been saying 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And now you've saved them. He also knew, and this is a very powerful reason why he wanted to die. He also knew that his life once again was in danger. Now, one of the great passages that every Old Testament prophet knew was Deuteronomy chapter 18. We won't go to it now because time is going by. But Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 20 to 22, are worth a look if you have the time this week. Because basically they say this. There's a question being posed. How will we know who the true prophet of God is? Fair question. How will we know? And God's answer is, well, this is how you'll know who the true prophet is. Because when they say something's going to happen, it will be, it will happen. The mark of the false prophet will be that when they say something's going to happen, it doesn't happen. And what you do with the false prophet is you put them to death. So can you see the dilemma that Jonah now has? He is going to be regarded as a false prophet when he goes back to Israel. They're going to say to him, so what happened with the preaching at Nineveh? Well, I said, well, I, I preached and I said that God is going to overthrow the city in 40 days and it didn't happen. Ah, they'll be saying, you're a false prophet. More than that, that his credibility as a prophet will be completely undermined. And he will, in effect, it'll be the end of his ministry. And will they believe God in future? Will they believe any prophet? Because God had sent him to Nineveh to overthrow Nineveh, ostensibly. But now he changed, apparently changed his mind. Well, can you believe God anymore? You see, these were the kind of things that were running through his mind. This is why he wanted to die. His life would not be worth tuppence on going back to Israel. Twice. Jonah says he'd rather die than live. And the question arises, well, is he being a bit of a drama queen? Well, yes, possibly. The second time he's angry and he's resentful is because the vine that God has provided, which has come up overnight and given him some shade from the scorching east wind, the vine has died. God has sent a little worm which has chewed the vine and it's died, and he no longer has his shelter. Now, I have some sympathy for Jonah. He's been through a lot, hasn't he, in this story. Uh, he's been thrown overboard, he's been half drowned, he's been swallowed by a, a huge fish. And as we saw last week, it was just unimaginable what it, what it must have been like. He's been vomited out onto dry land, and now he's been completely undermined by God. And God has sent this lovely vine to give him the shade from the scorching east wind. And now he's taking it away. Poor Jonah. We once went, uh, when we were visiting our nephew in Bahrain, as he was working there, we once went out to the desert. And uh, he said, I'm going to take you out to the desert because there's a great tree there. And it's only when you start driving out into the desert that you realise that actually... 
it's a desert. There's nothing there. But um, every tourist that ever visited Bahrain was taken out to this tree. And you get out to this about 30 miles out in the desert. And you visit this tree. It's huge. It's enormous. It's, but it's horizontal. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't give shade to anybody. It doesn't reach up to the heavens. It kind of grows and then goes horizontal. And frankly, it's a bit unimpressive. But it's where everybody is taken in Bahrain. And um, poor Jonah, he's up there. Excuse me while I fill in my notes. He's up there and uh, he's waiting for God to visit judgment upon Nineveh. And he's disappointed, frankly. Which brings us to our third point, the heart of Jonah and the heart of God. There's a great contrast, which God himself in this conversation with Jonah highlights. Jonah's position is clear. God has communicated, uh, has communicated a message through him. He's commissioned Jonah to deliver a message of judgment. And Jonah wants Nineveh to be destroyed. Uh, and uh, the question arises. He comes up on onto this little shelter at the east of the city, and all he's really interested in is God's methodology of destruction. He's not really interested in anything else. But God saves the Ninevites. He spares them from this terrible judgment. He's got this ringside seat up in the east of the city, and he frankly is disappointed in God. And then God provides the vine and the worm as a little kind of cinema verite episode. A little drama is played out to demonstrate God's power and his heart. The vine, as it were, represented uh, Jonah's message of judgment. He was quite happy with that. And then the worm represents God's refusal to act in accordance with Jonah's expectations. You see, Jonah has become cynical with the Assyrians. He even cares more about the vine than he does about the Ninevites. God has to point that out to him by giving him the vine and then taking it away. And Jonah becomes um, almost suicidal because God has taken away the vine. He cares more about the vine than the people of Nineveh. That's the state of Jonah's heart. But God's heart is not like that. God is not cynical about the Assyrians. He's not cynical about the Ninevites. He planned to save them all along. And actually, that's what really rankles with Jonah. I've been set up as the fall guy here. God intended to save these people all along. And God will save his people despite the disobedience of the prophet and Israel and despite their prejudices. God is not cynical about humanity. Now, I've been reading a book by Niall Ferguson. Uh, I don't know if you can see that on my screen. It's coming up the wrong way around. Hopefully you can see that. Now, Niall Ferguson... Um, I think he's still the professor of history at Harvard University. He's a British um, writer, historian, and this is called The War of the World. And I've been dipping into it because it 
shows the depth of um, uh, depravity of the human heart in the 20th century. And um, did you know, for example, that the historians have calculated that in the 20th century, approximately 190 million people were killed by other human beings. 190 million. And he calls the 20th century the great catastrophe of history, really. That uh, more people died by human agency in the 20th century than at any other time of history. And what we see in Jonah's heart, just a pale reflection, really, of our own heart. Now, this is contemporary because... There has been huge controversy recently, and probably rightly, uh, about the power of racism and prejudice in our society. The tragic death of George Floyd and the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement has brought to our attention the power of prejudice and the arguments about the power of prejudice grind on even to the point where on social media recently, some people have been taken off Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and so on because the power of their prejudice has overflowed into the social media, media area. It's no surprise to us as Christians, of course, but it demonstrates again the depth of depravity of the human heart. The fact is that your prejudice and my prejudice, whilst they may look different, are symptoms of our sinfulness, so that we become more concerned about our gardens, our vine, than we have concerns about other people. This terrible tragedy in Beirut has made us think again about not only the brevity of life, but how can we help? And that's, that's a really good thing. But actually, Jonah was more concerned about the vine than he was about the Ninevites. And that shows the power of prejudice. Remember, he hated them. They weren't God-fearers. They weren't Jewish. They weren't of the people of God. They were Goyim. They were under God's judgment. Why would I care about those people? But this chapter, this little story of this dialogue between God and Jonah is demonstrating that God's heart is very, very different. So in The War of the Worlds, which is Niall Ferguson's book, he argues pretty decisively, in my view, that one of the three great drivers of the Second World War was racism. You can see it in the way that the Japanese behaved in China. You can see the way uh, that the Nazis massacred a large proportion of the European population. Six million Jews three million homosexuals, people with mental illness and communists. The Holocaust, true numbers, actually arise to about 17 million, once you take into consideration the Russians, the Poles, and other people that they destroyed. Unless we forget, <laughs> British treatment uh, of other nations and people groups has often been nothing less than barbaric, almost Assyrian. Genocidal behaviours in 
Australia, America, South Africa, and so on. In fact, I was so moved by some of the things that I was reading in this book that I looked up genocide in uh, 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 Wikipedia. And you know what? You can keep scrolling down and scrolling down and scrolling down. And the list of genocides in human history, it just goes on for page after page after page. We look down on others because we're sinners. And genocide is, in a way, it's the end product of there, that seed of sin that's in our own hearts, and which Jonah demonstrated. Uh, a silly example. This week I was raging around the house because I couldn't find five pairs of socks. How I'd become so attached to these socks now is quite beyond me. It was a bit of a vine moment for me, I think. And uh, I went to Maggie and said, I can't find these socks. It's a complete mystery. And then she said to me, oh, I wonder if they were on the line when we were on a holiday. And I put two and two together and said, yes, that's what happened. They were stolen because in the house behind us where we were staying in Cornwall, there was a group of lads that I didn't really like very much. They were very noisy at night. And at two o'clock in the morning, they were shouting and whistling. And I don't know what they were doing, but they were keeping me awake. And I put two and two together, and yes, they must have stolen my socks. I mean, they were wearing their baseball caps backwards, such was the nature of their depravity. And I got it into my head that these people, yes, that, uh, they must have stolen my socks. Of course, within 10 minutes, I got up and checked the suitcase, and there were the offending items. My five pairs of socks had not been unpacked from the suitcase, completely my fault. But I had a little insight into my feelings towards other people. Now, if you can identify with that, you can identify with Jonah, and you will recognise the depravity at some level, at least, in your own heart. Recently, I read uh, a book by Joseph Conrad, a great 19th century writer. He was Polish, actually, and um, English was his second language. He was a, a remarkable man, and he wrote several books, uh, some of which um, you can still get today, and one of them was called The Heart of Darkness. I thoroughly recommend that you read that book. It's, um, it's a depressing book about the human heart. It was very famously, of course, uh, put to celluloid by Francis Ford Coppola in the film uh, Apocalypse Now. And uh, a very depressing film and a very depressing book because he highlights that the human heart is full of darkness. I'll, I'll leave that uh, to your researches later on. But what God is teaching Jonah is that despite Jonah's cynicism and hatred, God is a God of love and compassion, as well as great power. He loves to save. He even loves to save the Assyrians, the Ninevites. Now, of course, this comes to its fulfilment in Acts chapter 2, where not only does God pour out the Holy Spirit on the church, but he opens up the covenant to the Gentiles. 
And this little story of Jonah is a kind of forerunner of what God will do one day for the Gentiles. My family, uh, the Wyatt family, apparently comes from deepest Oxfordshire. I'm truly Gentile. But I praise God for Acts chapter 2, that uh, God expanded the covenant which had been previously limited to Israel. He now opened it up even to Oxfordshire, to Surrey, and even to Epsom. It's great news that we have. And in Ephesians chapter 2, you can read more about how Christ's death broke down this terrible dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. We're no longer Goyim. We are now the people of God, along with Jewish believers. It's a wonderful thing. So... Uh, Jonah's attitude of racism and prejudice is no longer to be found in the Christian church. We finish with this little message of the book of Nahum. Nahum is a book that uh, is easily overlooked. And uh, until I looked at it recently, I didn't even realise that it wasn't uh, a message delivered to the people of God. Of course, Nahum would have done that secondarily, but it was a message delivered primarily to the people of Nineveh. Nahum, or Nahum, as John said earlier, or Nahum, um, made this message. I think he went to Nineveh and preached this message. And it's a message of destruction. It's a message of judgment. About a hundred years after Jonah, and this time, God did not relent. He did not postpone judgment. In fact, this was the fulfillment, really, of Jonah's original mission. And he destroyed the city of Nineveh by the hand of Babylon, the kingdom of Babylon. And one of the great truths that is in danger of being lost in our 21st century evangelical churches is that God is going to judge the world. I would rather, if you like, that the book of Nahum wasn't in the canon. But the fact is that God is going to judge the world with justice. And uh, the book of Nahum is a kind of a little forerunner of what God is going to do. And one of the great messages of the New Testament, not only the Old Testament, is that God will one day judge the world with perfect justice. What he has also said, and this is the wonderful truth that the New Testament brings uh, into great focus for us, is that we don't have to wait until then to be judged because God has placed our sins upon the Lord Jesus Christ in his death on the cross. And if we believe in that judgment, then our sin can be dealt with there. And we don't have to await a final judgment. That's the great gospel message, that we don't have to wait until judgment day to be judged. We can be judged in the here and now by believing that when Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago, he died for your sins and my sins. Finish with this lovely verse. Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. They're completely ignorant. And many cattle as well. 
Should I not be concerned about that great city? 